be with you to do so. And why don't you grab your Bibles. You can open the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one of those in front of you. Revelation's an easy find. It's the last book in your Bible. We're going to take one week uh, kind of out of Acts. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're going to take a one-week break. As I share a few things just from my heart, as a pastor, um, in light of our time away and just some common themes over the last couple of months that I want to share with you that I'm going to use Revelation 2 as kind of the platform to do that. By God's grace, it'll be consistent with what's there in that scripture. Um, before I jump in, I do want to say just a, a really significant thank you. Uh, many of you contributed to us being able to, to get away for the last six or eight weeks. Uh, many of you contributed to an overwhelmingly generous financial gift that we were given to do so, and um, we didn't deserve that didn't feel entitled to it, but it was a huge blessing to our family. We were freed up in ways that we wouldn't have been otherwise, and it was a huge blessing. So I just want to say thank you, um, and we're so grateful to be back. We visited some other churches while we were gone, and we're biased to Crossway, but we are so grateful to be back here worshiping with you. It fills my heart to be able to sing with you this morning, and I do want to thank just publicly the other pastors, too, for Chris and Bill and Jason for their faithful leadership, and you know, we talk as a church and as leaders, and one of our... Um, values as a network and as a church is to have a plurality of pastors where it goes beyond just one particular personality or pastor in the leadership of the church. And, and, and I think by God's grace that was on display the last six or eight weeks. Uh, when I left on our sabbatical, I can genuinely say there wasn't even one small part of me that was concerned. Uh, I knew that the church was going to be cared for and shepherded by, by Chris and by, by Bill and by Jason and uh, from what I've heard, they did an excellent job. I was a little bit fearful that Chris was going to give me like a closet instead of an office in the new building. But even that, like he's, he stopped short of doing that. But um, I'm thank, thankful to Chris too. He's just been kind of triple duty almost, his normal role, kind of absorbing mine and then doing the building as well. And so take time to thank him and Bill and Jason just for their faithful leadership if you haven't done so. And thank God for you men. Um, as we got away, I, w- I want to kind of frame off a little bit of our time away because it'll, it'll provide a little bit of a, a framework for the message. So uh, part of what we did when we got away is we went down to Orlando. We did Disney World. So Disney World in July is hot. It's awesome, but it's hot. And um, one of the things for me, when I get on a roller coaster, I become a kid all over again. Anybody like that in this room? Anybody like roller coasters? There's like four of you. Come on, there's only Shelby, maybe. Okay, so some of us like turn into kids and some of us just get scared or we just, like my wife, you just go get some something to drink and watch everybody else scream. Um, but for me, I turn into like a 10-year-old all over again. We went to a water park, Aquatica down in Orlando. Same thing there. Like, I get into a water park. I might as well just be a, a 10-year-old boy. I'm just like loving every minute. And I'm watching my kids back on the roller coaster theme, you know, go on roller coasters for the first time, this mix of anguish and joy on their faces. And you just kind of forget all at once that, that you're an adult, at least for me I did, and you, you become a kid again. I'll come back to that in just a second. As part of our time away as well, Haley and I celebrated 20 years, and we got down to Savannah for six days, uh, just the two of us, and it was just a remarkably sweet and simple time together. Um, kind of the complexities of life were put on hold for a minute, and we talked, we walked, we ate together. We just had a lot of time just being together and reading, and it was just a real simple kind of stripped-down version of life, and the two of us reminding us of how much we love each other and why we fell in love even the first time, and by God's grace, why we're still in love even now. But it was a, kind of a simple version of life just for a moment to kind of be reminded of 
of what the love between us really is all about. And then lastly, a little bit different, uh, different tone to it is over the last few months, um, and some of you know this, but I had a really close friend of mine who's a pastor, and he had a, a really significant moral failure and disqualified himself from ministry and, and has left his life and his family um, in devastation. And so I had a chance to visit him uh, during my sabbatical. I went down to Atlanta and spent a couple hours with him, just kind of hearing directly from him what had happened. And, um, and one of the things that stood out to me amongst many things was as he shared just uh, where he is currently and the uncertainty of what's ahead in the future and just the kind of ruins surrounding him, like unsure, like is my marriage going to even make it through this? And he said, somehow, by some miracle, like I still know that God is holding me, that he loves me, despite just the wreckage of my own choices, like somehow in the midst of it all, I know that I'm still his child. And I think those three things combined, maybe oddly enough, have kind of pushed me back to a place where I just, I think one of our principal struggles in the Christian life, I would say for me as a pastor, maybe just the more you walk with the Lord, the more you struggle over the years to mature, the more distant in some ways we get away from what it means to be a child. Like we've forgotten what it feels like to just be, simply put, a child of God. We've moved on to maybe more complex and maybe at times what we convince ourselves are more important things and all the while we've drifted away from a simple, pure love for God that maybe something of what Haley and I experienced just being away together, just like a simple, pure devotion to Jesus. And so through this text and this morning, I want to just kind of bump us to that end that somehow, and I'm certain, I would say this with confidence, every single one of us needs to hear this. Because every single one of us, in varying degrees and severity, drifts away from the centrality of a love for God in the midst of our relationship with him. And so let's read Revelation chapter 2. I'll give you a little bit of context for it. Actually, let me do that before I even read the text. So this, this book is a book about end times, last things. It really is the summation of history. And this was an actual letter that would have been circulated in Asia Minor. It's written about 40 years after the church in Ephesus was birthed, which we'll hear about more in just a moment. And we'll see actually in a couple of weeks as we study through Acts. So this book is written by the Apostle John, the disciple John. He's exiled on this island of Patmos, has this vision from God. Jesus delivers a message from him to the churches. So basically, if you can imagine, this letter was circulated through these churches in Asia Minor, current-day Turkey, uh, Ephesus being really central to influence in all those churches. But the, the letter would have gone around, and every single church would have heard the different dealings with individual churches because there's seven different churches that Jesus addresses and he evaluates their relative health or unhealth. But all the churches would have heard that, which is, is significant for this reason. Because us, like we can detach ourselves from this letter and many other places in Scripture because it's maybe in our eyes something that was said about someone who once was many moons ago. But this is for us because God says, for anyone who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that includes us. 
So as we read Revelation chapter 2, this is one of the churches that Jesus is evaluating and giving his assessment of their spiritual condition. And as you read it, um, the stars, these seven stars, are seven angels of the churches. There's some debate as to whether or not they're actual like guardian angels of the churches or the leaders, the ministers of those churches. That's what that symbolism is. The seven lampstands are the actual churches themselves. And so just so you see that as we read it. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 with that brief introduction. This is God's word. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And remember, that's the churches themselves. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. So the beginning of what happens is Jesus speaks to the nature of the, the things that he sees. I know your works. And he goes on to commend them. But before he even says that, he gives this picture of how in Jesus' hand is, is held all the seven stars, these angels or these leaders. He holds them and he's walking around amongst the churches. And so that imagery, if you can imagine this just for a moment, kind of go back all the way to Genesis. So what we see in Genesis right before the fall, when Adam and Eve sin, that original sin, it says that God comes into the garden and does what? He walks with them. He seeks to walk with them as if that was his pattern. But that was fractured. Because of sin, man no longer walks with God in the way it was originally intended. But the whole rest of the Bible develops God's plan and purpose through Jesus to bring man back to a right place with God where God now walks among his people just like he did from the beginning. So he holds the leaders and he walks among his people. And he knows everything about us. And we'll talk a little bit more about the way in which we can receive that not so good news for some of us. That God knows everything about us, but for those who know Jesus, is actually good news. Now, depending on how you grew up, your spiritual background, there might be some of you that when you think about the knowledge of God, your relationship to God even, that he can feel a little bit more like a micromanaging boss. Everybody's probably had one of those. It's breeze over your shoulder, watching sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, right? He's just waiting for you to do something wrong. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, Matthew Henry describes God in this way as one who walks among the churches more like a gardener. If you can embrace that picture just for a moment. As someone who planted a garden, cultivates and keeps it with great care and joy, and he walks around in it. 
observing its fruitfulness, the ways in which he sees the fruit, but also observing the ways in which it has trouble spots, things, risks, things that cause damage. And that's really what Jesus is doing here. He's commending them for the fruitfulness that he sees, which is significant. Verse 2 says, I know your works. And he goes on to say, you're, you're putting in work. You're doing good things. It's evident. You're working hard. You're toiling for God. You're working with endurance in the midst of difficulty. You're not putting up with evil. You're testing and exposing false teachers. You're bearing up, remaining steadfast in, in difficult times for the sake of Jesus' name. We'd all be like, that's really good. If I was to have a resume of all the things I was doing well, that would be high on the list. I'd want those things to be said about me. And to be sure, they're commendations. They're good things that the church was doing. But that's not the only thing that Jesus saw. Before we transition to the next part, if you think about Ephesus, you can think about any solid church from the outside looking in. They have really good preachers. They're orthodox in their belief in Scripture. They preach the gospel. They're they're dismantling false teaching and false teachers and they're doing good work and they're bearing up in the midst of difficulty for Jesus' name. You'd be like, this is a really good church. We'd go to that church and we'd say, this is fruitful and good. And much like those good churches in Ephesus, Ephesus was the stomping grounds of really significant preachers. Apollos, who's called mighty in the scriptures, started his ministry there. Priscilla and Aquila come to help him. We'll see that in a couple weeks in Acts. Then Paul stayed the longest of all of his tenure at any church in Ephesus for a year and a half, teaching and building them up. And then Timothy, we see letters written to Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus. And then John, the apostle, the disciple John, who writes this book, led the church in Revelation. What's the point? This is a solid church with really good doctrine and really good teachers but as Jesus looked into the church, he didn't just see what was good. He saw something horribly missing, and that thing was love. Where's the love? You got all these things going on for you, but I want you to understand that I have this one thing against you, that you've left your first love. You haven't just kind of generally lost it, like somehow it's been lost in the weeds. You have turned away from it actively to lesser things, to secondary things. You have caused even the pursuit of sound doctrine to be replacement for love. I have this against you that you abandoned the love you had at first. And the Ephesian church with its capable preachers, orthodox doctrine, its vigilance against false teaching, it turned away from the thing that mattered most to God. You can hear from his words, do you love me? You're doing all these good things, but do you love me? You're coming to church, but do you love me? You're serving me, but where's your love for me? In 1 Corinthians 13, we're given this picture that, that we can, all of us believers, we can speak with angelic eloquence. But if it's not motivated and grounded in love, you know what it sounds like. A clanging cymbal. A noisy gong. It's meaningless. Paul goes on to say, you could have great faith. Faith that moves mountains. But if you don't have love, it's meaningless. You could give everything you have, everything you own. 
unto your own life. Give it even to God. But if you don't have love, when you've lost love, everything is lost. That's the message that we see as it relates to love. Somehow, knowing and learning about Jesus had become a replacement for loving Jesus. You hear me when I say this. If we can know the right things and we should pursue that, we can do the right things and we should do that. But we can know and do the right things and all the while leave love behind. Just conforming our behavior, some Christian pattern of life. All the while, our heart has grown cold to the object of our affection, the Lord Jesus. And that's what he's saying to this church. And here's maybe one simple way to put this lesson from the Ephesian church. Is that sound theology, biblical accuracy, doesn't automatically lead to doxology. Here's what doxology is. A response of praise to God. Sound theology is the, is the biblical accurate study of God. And this is what we see in the Ephesian church. Sound theology will not automatically lead to doxology. Because we can quickly replace praise and love for God with sound theology. We should have sound theology, to be sure. And if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that we're passionate about that. But it's not a replacement for a love of God. Never. It leads to it. Necessarily. It should. And Shailen says it this way. I know you've been missing Shailen quotes. I'm good at those. Shailen said it this way. It says, sound theology without doxology is just cold, dead orthodoxy. But doxology without sound theology is just idolatry. It's pure emotionalism and feeling without being anchored to truth. But hear me when I say this. This is the example of the Ephesian church. I believe at least part of it is that sound theology won't automatically lead to doxology, to response to praise and increased love of God. It should, but it won't automatically unless we labor to that end. And in a quest for biblical accuracy, we can lose devotional vibrancy. The purpose of sound theology is ultimately doxology, response to praise. And here's the solution. I love this because it's phonetically easy to remember, and that's not due to me, it's due to this, the scripture. So if you find yourself, to whatever degree, we identify that there's a loss of love, there's a drift away from loving God, which all of us probably should today. Every single one of us should evaluate this drift away from a simple, pure love for God. He's my father, I'm his child, I'm held by him, praise be to God. If you've drifted away from that, here's a solution in this text. You ready for it? Remember, repent, and return. Those three words are right there in this text. The first one is this, remember from where you have fallen. It's a really interesting command because it's not very theological at all. In fact, it's really not theological at all because what it's calling us to do is to think about where we used to be in light of where we are now in relation to our love for God. Remember from where you've fallen. Apprehend the distance between the two. Discern the drift in your heart. That's the first call. Remember from where you've fallen. Consider the movement from where you once were to where you are now. When you think about that idea of 
loving God at first. There's a raw vibrancy to love at first. But that love, just like human love, has to be cultivated and protected and tended to along the way in order to grow. Let me just ask you these, or just give you these encouragements. Think back to what it felt like when you first came to know Jesus. And I said that intentionally. Think back to what it felt like when you first came to know Jesus. Think back to what your time with him was like at first. What was your love for him like? How was it expressed? What are some of the vivid reasons in your mind as to why you loved him then? Remember from where you've fallen. Think about where you were at the beginning. That's the first R. As I think back on my own journey, there's, there's a few words that came to mind. One is this expectation. I remember as a young believer, getting up to read my Bible, it was like I was opening a present every single day. Like I expected to hear from God when I opened my Bible. And I read it as if it was for me. If you walk with Jesus for any amount of time, my guess is you probably had similar experience closer to the time when you first came to know him. But there was an expectation that, God, what do you want to say to me? How do you want to teach me? How do you want to form me through my time with you? There was an urgency. I want and need to be here with you. As a young husband at the time, shortly after I came to faith and starting to serve in different ways and having my first job out of college and all these different stages of life and then just... As a, as a man in process, all my different frailties and failures, I knew I needed God. There was an urgency in my time with him. My love for him was urgent. And there was a sense of wonder. Because I still wasn't very far removed from my life before Jesus. Like in a way, I could still feel like the embers of a fire. Like it was still close. Close enough for me to me to feel what it was like to live without him. The sting of that life and the wonder of the fact that God accepts me now through the work of Jesus. And he's holding me as his child. He considers me his son. There was a wonder about my time with Jesus. I wonder if we were able to remember what it was like to be cared for as, a, as an infant or even as a toddler most of our memories don't go back that far. You might have a strange memory in there when you were little, but most of us don't remember what it was like as a helpless infant or even a toddler to be cared for by our parents. But what if we did? Like, what if we had that experience? What are some of the things that we would remember that we might talk to our parents about and say it might sound something like this? Remember all the times you, you picked me up when I fell down? You remember all those moments, hundreds, thousands of moments where you picked me up when I fell because I couldn't walk or I was falling into stuff because I was a toddler. Remember those times? Or maybe it would sound something like, you remember how you used to hold me and rock me to sleep, how I used to fall asleep on your shoulder? Maybe we'd remember that. There's myriads of times where we were held by our mom or our dad. Remember when I was sad and how you would sing to me? You look me in my eyes and just sing songs over me. Remember that? Like how sweet those moments were? Or maybe remember the millions of times you actually saved my life. <laughs> I was wandering into traffic, 
I was wandering around stairs. You caught me right before my head hit the pavement. Just myriads of times as a toddler, as an infant, that my life was saved by my parents. And maybe we start to inch into what it actually feels like to remember what it's like to be a child of God. God, I remember. I remember all the times you picked me up when I fell. All those times. I remember how you used to hold me, as it were, and sing truth over me as I fell asleep when I felt like I couldn't sleep because of difficulty, because of fear. I remember that. Remember the, the millions of times you have saved my life, spared my life before I knew you because of my foolishness. I remember what that was like to feel the depth of my need as an infant in Jesus. And that's something of what I'm talking about. It's something of what I think is present here. Remember what it was like when it's almost like all you had to remember the fact that you just are held by the power of God by the love of God, the sheer delight of God to love you for no other reason but for the fact that he is love and he chose to lavish his love upon you because he's glorified in it, not because we deserve it, but because he loves to do it. He's pleased to do it. So remember to cultivate gratitude and affection for God. Maybe some of it is just thanking God for the simple things that we just buzz by every single week we go by, every day we spend Spend time being thankful for the way that God is and does and has held you throughout your life. But also remember to identify the various behaviors and patterns of life and perspectives and thoughts that have caused you to abandon the love you had at first. Because part of this remembering, the, the, the second part is to repent, which implies that as we remember, we're going to we're going to think about, we're going to realize and identify certain things that have caused us to move from this place to this place. Because the next action is repent. Stop doing those things. Turn away from those things and turn to God. Turn away from sin and self-rule and apathy and turn to Christ. He's the only place where life can be found now and forevermore. Turn. And repentance is a big word and maybe it can lose its sense of meaning because maybe we hear it often. But it's this picture of turning quickly, turning away. A.T. Robertson, a commentator about this section said this. He says, it's an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it is too late. An urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it's too late. And one of the things in this life I think we can be most guilty of is pushing off things to a future day that we don't have promised to us. Now, there's present in this passage, this reminder that there's only so much time we have. If you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, not just know about him, but you know him, you love him. He's the object of your affection. You've surrendered your rights, come underneath his kingship. If you do not know Jesus in that way, surrender to him while you have time. You do not have any guarantee for tomorrow. Believe today, return today and turn to him and find him to be that father who will include you into his family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do it today. 
Don't delude yourself into thinking that you'll have some other day where you can get serious about Jesus. You don't have tomorrow guaranteed for you. Believe today. And if you have trusted in Christ, the call is still to repent, to turn with a sense of eagerness and zeal. There should be an urgency to repentance. When we're confronted with ungodly conduct, we'll return quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it gives this picture. There's a worldly sorrow that all it does is create tears. You look sad enough, but it doesn't create any change. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, which is a synonym for repentance, produces these things in your life. And here's a list of the words that Paul uses. Produces earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself. You want to get as far away from that thing that doesn't please God as you can. Indignation about sin, fear, longing, zeal. I don't know about you, it doesn't sound like an apathetic posture toward sin. It's a passionate turn, an urgent turn away from the things that don't please God to walk with and to follow him with a whole heart. Repent, turn away quickly, and God will do the good work. It's so good of him. When you go from this place, like when, by God's grace, you're praying, you're thinking about maybe this text and the things I'm sharing with you now, if you have like any ounce of grief over your sin, remember that that is a sign of the goodness of God in your life. But for his spirit, you would not feel that way. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't feel grief over the things that grieve the heart of God. In Romans chapter two, Paul talks about like in the face of condemnation because of our sin, it's ultimately the, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Remember when you feel conviction, that's the kindness of God at work in your life and turn, respond with repentance to move away from the things of self-rule and the things of the world that walk completely for God. The last R is return. Remember from where you've fallen, repent and return or do the things you did at first. Return to the works you did at first. The things you did at first, the things that you're remembering even, the behaviors, the thoughts, the attitudes of a newborn, go and do those things again. Go back to them. Pick up the simple things that defined your love for God in that moment and do them again. As believers, we never graduate from the fundamentals of the faith, of just being in God's word and praying and being with God's people, singing his praise, being thankful. Go back and do the things you did at first. And there should, by God's grace, what will return to us is this expectation of what do you have for me today as I, as I turn to do the things I did at first that we'd receive from God the very things that he wants of us in that day. There's an urgency that I want to need to be here with you now. I need you today more than anything. And I wonder, just like my friend, and maybe for some of you, maybe you feel the proximity, the closeness of your failures. They seem to kind of creep in around you. I don't know your individual struggles. But maybe like him, maybe the response is like, by some miracle, of grace, God is holding me still. He still allows me to be part of his family. He considers me a child of God. We've talked about this in different ways. We preach through Ephesians. This was part of it as we think about the light of Christ that shines upon us and exposes us. And one of the miracles of the gospel is this, is that like apart from Christ, when you get exposed by Christ, it is a dreadful, fearful thing. 
Much like the people will wail and mourn at his return because they've been exposed in their unbelief and their self-rule. That's a dreadful thing to be exposed by Christ and not turn into him, to not run to him. But the miracle of the Christian life of the gospel is this. Please hear me on this. Is that the moment you feel exposed by the word of God, by the spirit of God, is simultaneously the moment of your healing. If you turn to Jesus. If you run to it. Not like Adam and Eve when they, they heard God's voice. And what did they do? They were exposed in their shame. And so they ran into creation to try to cover themselves up. Something that can never suffice to cover up their shame. But now through Christ, he covers up our shame. So when you feel exposed in your failures and frailty, what you can do is run to him. Let the light of Christ shine upon you that you might have life and healing in his name. Don't run away from him. Run to him and find in him everything that you need, the deepest longings of your heart. And maybe to some degree, each one of us will be able to feel just the magnitude of his love for us. It's the, the wonder and the joy of being considered a child of God, held just plainly and supernaturally in his arms. He loves us still, even though we've done this for the hundredth time. And nothing can quench his love for us. Nothing can separate us from his love through Christ. And let me invite you to consider today the, the ways you've left your love for Jesus. Spend time this week remembering, thinking about intentionally what it was like when you first walked with Jesus. And turn and specifically repent from the things that have caused you to drift and return to those mostly simple things that you did at first, that God might be the recipient of our great love for him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.